Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Well, hello, hello, everybody. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 116, and today I'm going to be talking you through some basics regarding pediatric pharmacology. Of course, before we hop into that, I'd like to just take a minute to give a listener shout out to those of you who take the time to rate and review the podcast or the website, the book, my digital online courses, anything like that. I just love sharing that love out into everybody else and just giving you a little bit of a thank you on the podcast. So today's shout out goes to Steve from New Jersey. And Steve says... Nurse Mo is a must listen for any nursing student. I can't describe how much better off I was at the start of my nursing program because I found her podcast three to four weeks before the program started. From organization tips for school to getting a head start on content so I wasn't hearing everything for the first time. I highly recommend Straight A Nursing. I also got the med surge content and think it is very helpful and recommend. Thank you so much, Steve, for taking the time out of your busy schedule to rate and review the podcast. And I'm so glad that you found the med surge success pack to be beneficial for you. I really love hearing that from you guys. So those of you that are heading into pediatrics or for whom perhaps pediatric pharmacology is incorporated into an overall pharmacology course, you've probably by now realized that the one overarching theme about peds and pharmacology is that kids are not simply just small adults. The way that kids process, excrete, metabolize drugs, completely different. So that's why it warrants us taking a little bit of a closer look, and we'll talk about the basics of pediatric pharmacology, okay? So... Truth be told, there's not a ton of research on the way meds interact with kids. A lot of times as you're doing your research, it might just say something along the lines of not well studied in children. And that's because, you know, most of the kids, like more than 75% or so, um, most of those meds given to kids just lack pediatric specific studies. Some lessons that we have learned from pediatric studies are that uh, the responses that children have to medications are much more variable and in many ways much more dynamic than we ever thought um, possible. And that adverse reactions can be very, very specific and sometimes are different than what they are in adults. So one of the first things to know about pediatric farm is that a lot of the medications you guys will be giving or studying are dosed by 
weight. So if you're not solid on how to do those dosage calculations that are dosed off weight, then review that for sure before you head into your pediatric clinicals or take any exams because you may need to do those calculations in your exams. So if you're fuzzy on dosage calculations, go check out my dosage calculations course. You absolutely need to understand how to dose by weight, how to convert from grams to milligrams. Um, teaspoons is a common one because a lot of times home medications are given by teaspoon, not by mils, um, kilograms to pounds, all those sorts of things. Okay, so that's a little heads up for you. So when we're looking at pharmacology for pediatrics, we're going to be looking at it in four main ways, absorption, distribution, metabolism, and excretion. So we'll look at each of those, and then we'll talk about some specific pediatric considerations that you may encounter as a nursing student in your clinicals. So let's first talk about absorption. So in kids, the key overall, the key takeaway that I want you to get from this is that the absorption is going to be much more erratic in kids than it is in, an, in adults and is also going to vary based on if they're an infant versus a baby versus a toddler versus a preschooler versus an adolescent, etc. There's a ton of variability, okay? So we have the issue of absorption being irregular and being a little bit erratic. So what exactly um, are we talking about here? One of the issues is gastric pH, which is variable at different stages of a child's development. It's generally thought to be neutral at birth and then fluctuate and then not really reach that standard pH level until the child is about two years old. If you were to dive down the rabbit hole of gastric pH in infants and children, you would be on quite the journey. There's a lot of evidence out there. Some of it's very variable, but the general consensus is that that pH is pretty neutral at birth, and then it um, drops down, gets more acidic, gets closer to that three level on the pH scale in about 24 to 48-ish hours, but then starts going back up towards neutral, and there's a lot of debate if that's 72 hours up to 10 days, so Kind of just think about that time frame. Don't really worry about the specifics of it. Just know that there is that variability. And then the acid again, um, or the pH rather than again becoming more acidic over time up until about that two years of age. So why we care about this is because medications like penicillin, for instance, will have higher peak concentrations in newborns who have that neutral pH than in infants or children whose gastric pH is more acidic. So there's always going to be a lot of dosing variability with medications for children and for many reasons. And absorption and gastric pH is just one of those many reasons. Another issue with absorption has to do with bile secretion. So in those first couple to three weeks of the child's life, that bile secretion isn't really 
at optimal levels. So that's going to play a role in, you know, the drug solubility because drug solubility will increase as bile concentration, bile salt concentrations increase. So um, this will have an impact on the absorption of medications in those uh, younger children. And a drug that comes to mind for this is a drug that is poorly soluble, such as hydrocortisone. Um, I don't think you need to know all that detail, just know that bile secretion is going to impact the absorption of drugs for infants in that, you know, that first two to three weeks when it's not quite up to adult levels. And then there's the issue of intestinal permeability, which is going to be high at birth and then reduce in those first few weeks of life. And along with intestinal permeability, there's gastric emptying times, which are a little bit more variable than they are in adults. For example, in a newborn, there is delayed gastric emptying, so um, absorption is going to be very irregular in a newborn, and peristalsis is irregular. So giving PO medications to a newborn, that absorption is going to be much more erratic than, say, if you were giving it in an older child versus an adult. So when you're looking at gastric emptying time, you guys, I want you to be very aware that if gastric emptying time is prolonged like it is um, in small children. It really doesn't reach those adult levels until about six to eight months. So medications are going to sit in the stomach for longer, meaning absorption is going to be increased. So that will require different dosing for different ages of children. In addition to the GI factors that play a role in how drugs are absorbed in pediatric patients, we also have factors such as blood flow at the site of, say, an intramuscular injection or a subcutaneous injection, and we also have that thin, um, thinner skin, that thinner stratum corneum that children have. So think about IM medications, sub-Q medications that you give to children, and then topical creams such as hydrocortisone cream that would be placed on an infant for some kind of a dermatological ailment. So those are definitely going to be impacted and have different absorption than what you might expect in an adult patient. For example, let's say you give a neonate an intramuscular injection. So that blood flow in the muscles in newborns or in neonates is very variable. So that absorption is going to be also very variable. It could be delayed and then there could be a sudden improvement in the blood flow to that muscle. And now there's a rapid absorption of that medication and that can lead to the child having you know, levels that are too high. So you have to be very aware of that when you're giving those kinds of medications. And then when we look at the skin, so infants and young children have that thin stratum, okay, so that thinner layer, and then they have a larger body surface area in relation to their size than do adults. So this has a very big impact on the topical absorption of medications. So children are going to absorb topical medications more readily than adults do, and that can lead to systemic toxicity. So you want to be very careful. Let's say you're giving the patient a lidocaine as a topical. Well, lidocaine is typically used topically as... Um, 
like a numbing agent, an anesthetic agent, topically, well, lidocaine can have systemic effects. So you'd be very careful. You would not want those systemic effects to occur in an infant or a child because that can cause some serious cardiac dysrhythmias. And then another more common one would be hydrocortisone type creams, corticosteroid creams that can cause systemic side effects in children because of that higher body surface area and uh, thinner stratum, thinner um, you know layers of the skin for the drug to get through. So it's absorbed more readily. Another issue could be that that blood-brain barrier that you learned about in MedSurge in small children, in babies, infants, it's more immature. So it's more likely to act as a, as a, a colander than an actual barrier. So CNS side effects could be more pronounced in children than they are in adults. So, um, you know, central nervous system medications that are intended to have an effect on the central nervous system could also have unpredictable results. Sometimes a medication that knocks adults out, like say, for instance, phenobarbital can make a child go absolutely bonkers. So just know that with CNS drugs, they may act differently than they do in children versus adults. And if there is a CNS side effect, it could be more more pronounced in children. So then let's talk a little bit now about the distribution of pharmacological agents in the pediatric population. So there's definitely differences in body composition between um, adults and children, and then even further amongst children between neonates, infants, children and adolescents. So these are mainly surrounding things like their total body water and their uh, ratio of fat to lean muscle. So when we look at the total body water of a newborn, it's at about 80%. And recall, if you listened to my episode um, a couple weeks back about third spacing. We talked a lot about fluid compartments in the body and total body water for an adult is about 60%. So newborns have a TBW of around 80%, which is going to drop down at around six months um, to that 60%. So infants, you guys, are going to require higher doses of hydrophilic drugs. Hydrophilic, remember, water-loving drugs. And they also have a decreased volume of distribution for those lipid-soluble drugs. Another important concept to understand is that infants, say younger than about six months, their liver is, is immature. And so they will have decreased plasma proteins. And what plasma proteins do is they bind to drugs. So what that will do, if there's less of those in the system, then there's a, a higher levels of unbound drugs in the in the system. So you do have to monitor these children for drug toxicity, even when the plasma concentration of the drug is normal, because there could be unbound levels of the drug circulating in the system. And phenytoin is a one great example of this, dilantin. Um, it is only about 80-ish percent bound in infants, but 94 to 98% bound in adults. And then just the whole concept of the body fat distribution, it changes a lot throughout the child's development. And the main takeaway from this is that it can be kind of difficult to predict how a medication is going to 
um, exert its effects in the body because of this. So as children are growing, especially if they're taking medications such as like seizure medications or taking a medication chronically, really important that the child be routinely evaluated by their healthcare provider, um, especially during those growth spurts, and just to make sure that we have the right dosing of medication for them. So now when we talk about the metabolism of drugs, you guys, um, this is a highly complex topic and we don't need to get into, you know, the CYP450 enzymes or the P450 enzymes or UGT-TB7. We don't need to know all of that stuff. We're not becoming pharmacists. What we want to know is that drug metabolism is going to vary, be very variable over that first year of life especially and um, is going to be a lot, just in general more variable than it is in adults. The key takeaway is that when the body is undergoing a lot of change like say um, you have a premature premature infant who is developing rapidly or a child who's going through puberty or that neonate who is just gaining weight and developing and growing so quickly, they're more likely to be changes in the pharmacokinetics of medications during those periods of great physiological variability in the child. So what you'll see most likely is that drugs are um, redosed routinely um, based on the child's age, the child's body size, etc. The dose that a child takes when they're six months old is probably not going to be the same dose that they take when they're six years old. So just know that dosing is quite variable in this population. And then when we look at excretion of drugs, so how we you know eliminate it from the body, this is affected a lot by the, the renal system in the newborn, which has a lower GFR. Remember that in newborns, the GFR is only about 40, maybe 30% of adult values. So that GFR is going to be lower. So excretion is going to be lower. By the, chi- uh, by the time the child gets to like 6 to 12 months of age, that GFR is going to um, get closer to those adult values. So drugs that you know, those drugs that rely on renal excretion are going to be cleared more slowly in the neonate patient. So again, uh, dosing intervals, the actual dose of the medications itself are going to be continually evaluated, continually monitored and adjusted for um, certain medications that do rely on that renal clearance, like for instance, digoxin. You know, a child who has a congenital heart condition could be on digoxin and that medication will be constantly evaluated and dosing adjusted based on their renal function as they mature and that improves. So let's say you're in clinical and you want to make sure that you're giving your medications very, very safely. So most likely your professor will want to see or the nurse that you're working with will want to see your dosing calculation that you have done. So you want to be very comfortable again doing that milligrams per kilogram per dose or milligrams per kilogram per per day kind of dosage calculation and then Um, If it's a per day kind of dose, make sure if it's supposed to be in a divided dose, like three doses, that you then further divide that out. You won't want to give the patient's entire daily allotment in one dose if it was intended to be given, you know, three times 
in three doses that day. So you want to do your medication right, you know, the right patient, the right drug, obviously, the right dose, as we've talked about a lot, um, the right medication administration time when you're giving it, the right route, and the right documentation. And you guys, I actually have a cheat sheet where I go through some more medication administration safety factors, and it's called Bulletproofing Your Medication Administration. And I think that that's actually more valuable than just the six rights. I think it's about 11 things that you will want to check before you give meds to ensure that you're doing it as safely as possible. So if you are interested in that, I will include the link to that so that you can download that free little cheat sheet there. Now, when you give medication to kids, those of you who have kids already know that this can be really challenging. So especially that oral route or anything involving a needle, right? So um, oral medication administration with kids, a lot of times it is in a suspension and some kind of an elixir. Sometimes it's, uh, I think they usually try to make it taste good, um, that the challenge and the danger with that is that you don't want it to taste too good because you don't want the child to think, oh, that's my sweet drink and I'm going to have some of that. You wouldn't want the child to accidentally overdose themselves. So um, medication administration, if they're little babies, um, you'll often see it in a syringe. It's a different syringe than the type of syringe that you will use to give injections. It has a different kind of connector. So you won't be able to attach a needle onto it. Hopefully, if you guys ever find yourselves having to jimmy something together, chances are, huge chance, probably 99.9% chance that those two things are not supposed to go together. Don't do it. Check with somebody who knows, okay? So medication administration with little babies will most likely be in an oral syringe. And in the facility where I work, the oral syringes are orange um, and they have a special um, tip so that they can't be attached to anything that could go into a vein or a muscle or anything like that. And you can just place that little syringe in their mouth and put it towards the cheek and then they can swallow it. Not not going straight back because then they tend to cough and choke on it. Toddlers um, can usually take these medications more readily if you give the syringe to mom or dad and mom or dad administers the medication. Toddlers tend to be a little bit afraid of strangers. So letting mom and dad participate as much as possible will get that child, hopefully, um, to take their medication more readily. Now, with older kids, kids who can make some choices, you can help them feel like they have some control over their situation, which is huge with kids of that age. So give them the option. Do you want it in the syringe or do you want me to put it into a cup? And then they get to choose. And a lot of times they can even administer it themselves. Um, A little tip, if you are mixing, let's say you have to crush a medication and mix it with something. So a nice thing to do is is don't mix it with anything um, that's essential. Um, You know, if they have to, um, let's say drink a certain item, you don't want to mix it with that item because the chances are they're not going to drink all of it. Um, It does taste bad, so they're probably only going to take Um, a little bit of that. So mix it with as little as you need to, to get it, um, you know, into a consistency that they can take. So you uh, maybe like a little bit of 
uh, chocolate is a really good flavor that can cover up a lot of other flavors. So maybe a little bit of chocolate pudding, but just a little bit, okay? Um, some kids will take their pills with a little scoop of ice cream. You can ask mom or dad how the child likes to take their medication if, um, you know, a lot of kids who have chronic conditions are very used to taking their medications and mom and dad and the kids already have, you know, a routine around that. When you are giving eye drops to a child, you want to make sure that the eye drops don't go down into that duct and get into systemic circulation. You want them to exert their influence locally on the eye. So you put a little bit of pressure there on that inside um, corner of the eye. That's the nasolacrimal duct. So you put a little pressure there and that keeps the medication from going down into that duct. And, um, and then with the ear, you need to pull the pinna down and back. Okay, so remember down and back. That's going to be a test question, you guys. I absolutely promise you that. And then we have the fun IM injections. So IM injections are used at birth. So babies will get a vitamin K injection right away in the vastus lateralis. And then they may be used later for things like antibiotics for kids. So um, if your child is old enough to know what's going on, they're going to be freaking out about the idea of getting an injection, about getting a shot. So you can use like an Emla cream, which is a topical um, anesthetic. You put it on, you wait about half an hour, and then you can come back and give the injection. The problem is that if you put the Emla cream on and the kid knows why you're doing it, now they have a 30-minute window to freak out about what's to come. So um, a lot of times, you know, if you can get the cream on without uh, showing your hand, then great. Um, older kids will often agree to the Imla cream. They'll want it because they do understand that it helps. Even though they do have that nervousness of the anticipation of the injection, they do know that that Imla cream is going to help. It will only take away the sting of the poke. It does not take away the sting of the medication. So make sure you explain that to the child because if you uh, put on the Imla cream and you say, this is going to make your, your shot not hurt and then it still hurts because some medications do sting once they hit that muscle the child's no longer going to trust you so you have to be very honest with them about what to expect when you're administering your uh, your medications and then of course there's IV administration of medications which is a very 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 high risk procedure and I doubt that you will be doing it as a nursing student. So, but if you are just, you know, monitoring a patient who's getting IV medications, one of the things that you really want to watch for is that IV site. You want to watch for any infiltration, any phlebitis at that IV site. So um, any redness, any leaking around the IV site where it looks like maybe the medication is leaking out, better that it leaks out on the bed than inside, um, you know, through um, infiltrate into the tissues because some medications can be very dangerous. You do want to keep an eye on that because even if the medication is, you know, leaking out onto the bed, well, the patient's not getting it. And in some cases, that patient absolutely has to have that medication. So keeping a very, very close eye on IV sites is absolutely key. And again, those dosages being just rock, rock solid on your medication calculations is absolutely critical when you're giving IV meds. Two ways that you will see IV fluids and medications given commonly in the pediatric setting is uh, through something called a volutrol or something called a syringe 
pump. So these things are used because kids are very tiny. With an adult, you know, you can give a fair amount of fluid and they don't have any problems. You know, you could give an adult 20 mils of fluid. Um, you know, you give their medication, you flush the line before, you flush the line after, and before you know it, you're at 20 mils of fluid or 30 mils of fluid. Well, with a neonate or a small, um, you know, a small little child, maybe a child with a congestive heart failure, anything like that, fluid amounts have to be very, very, very carefully monitored. So a lot of times when you're giving a medication, you want to give it in the smallest amount of fluid as you possibly can. And then to avoid any accidental fluid boluses, then the medication is often given through something called a volutrol, which you can think of as volume control. And what it looks like, it kind of looks like a cylinder. I'm going to try to describe it. It looks like a big cylinder that is uh, hanging in the middle of your IV tubing. And there's a clamp above it and a clamp below it. So the um, it spikes into your IV fluid bag, let's say, and then you fill the volutrol with the controlled amount. And I'm not sure what the amount is for a neonate, but let's say it's one hour's worth of fluid. So that even if all that fluid drained in at once, it would only be one hour's worth. So let's say the child is getting five mils an hour. Then you um, would only fill that volutrol with five mils, okay? And then you clamp it above so that even if there's some kind of issue with the pump, some kind of issue where everything just runs into the patient, they're only going to get that controlled volume. So that's a volutrol. We use those in the intensive care unit or the critical care setting for high-risk medications like insulin. So we wouldn't want that whole bag of insulin. Oh God, um, that would be absolutely devastating, but you would not want that to happen. So you put in a controlled amount and, you know, that's typically one hour's worth of insulin into that volutrol. And then if there were an issue with the pump, you hope there's never an issue with the pump, but if there were, and it free flowed in, it would only be one hour's worth of insulin. Now, I'm not saying the patient wouldn't have any problems. They could have a significant hypoglycemia, but it's not like they got the whole bag of insulin. So volutrols are used for patient safety con to control the volume that is going into the patient, okay? So, and then there's a syringe pump, which is smaller. So that would be um, a little, it's a syringe. I forget what size they are. If they're 20 mil syringes or 10 mil syringes, but a syringe, and then you put that on the pump and it just very slowly pushes the medication in um, that way with a syringe and it's on a pump. So it's automated. Okay, so those two things you will definitely see in PEDS and definitely if you spend any time in the NICU, you will see them there. And then when we talk about those topical medications, here is a test question for you guys. This will definitely be asked at some point, whether it's in an NCLEX practice exam that you're taking, an exit, a HESI or an ATI exam, or, you know, on one of your nursing school exams, is when you're putting on those topical medications, your first thought might be, well, I don't want the child to just rub it off or lick it or anything, so I'm going to put a dressing over it. An occlusive dressing over that topical medication will increase the absorption of the medication. So um, avoid that if you can. Note that the diaper can act as an occlusive dressing. So if there's like a hydrocortisone cream in that diaper area, it could increase that systemic absorption of that hydrocortisone. So just be aware of that. If you can um, get that cream on the child, 
um, with, and then maybe just letting the clothes gently cover it would be helpful, but not something occlusive. Okay, so I hope you have a little bit of a more, um, a greater appreciation of the variability and the dynamic nature of pharmacology for the pediatric patient. Uh, the key takeaways that I want you guys to have is that the pharmacokinetics in children is just so highly variable and dependent on a lot of different factors. The um, You need to check, triple check your doses because it's very, very um, detrimental. Like with an adult, you might have a little bit of time to reverse something or to fix something, or they may not have an adverse event. But with a child, you really don't have any any room for error at all. So you're going to check your six rights of a medica- of medication administration, or if you download my cheat sheet, the eleven rights. And you know, a lot of times you have to be very creative. When you're giving medications to kids, you've got to get them to comply. You've got to get them to trust you. So a lot of what you do in pediatrics is going to be dependent on the uh, developmental age of the child, where they are in their, you know, how much they trust strangers, don't trust strangers, how will they know you, um, if mom and dad are there, if mom and dad can participate, all of those things. So pediatrics was a really interesting clinical rotation for me. I didn't really have any interest in going into pediatrics, but I developed a fabulous uh, appreciation for that field of nursing. The kids were just so inspiring. I, uh, I work with adults and... I have to say, sick adults are kind of usually kind of bummed out. You know, I guess that's not a really good word, but they don't, um, you know, they don't want to be active. They don't want to move around. You have to like convince people to get out of bed. A lot of times adult patients, and this can be really frustrating for people sometimes, is that they don't want to take steps to get better. Um, And I'm just saying, you know, in general, but not always. Uh, Sometimes though, the kids, what I noticed was that for the most part, if a kid could move about and a kid could play, they would. So they just had such, they weren't going to let their illness get them down. I was, uh, did my pediatric hours in a pediatric oncology unit and those kids were not going to let their cancer get them down. You know, some kids obviously, um, maybe they had just received their chemo. They were feeling very awful, very sick, but for the most part, man, those kids were up in that playroom as much as they possibly could be. And I just, I compare that to the adults that I take care of now that I have to just like convince, okay, we've got to at least sit up in the chair today. So kids are just great. They're inspiring in that way and a lot of fun. So if you're creative you're and you're great with kids and you have that kind of personality where they just trust you and love you and they can feel your genuine um Uh, affection for them, then you may just be absolutely wonderful at pediatric nursing. It is truly a fabulous, fabulous field. Okay, you guys, so next week we are going to... I think I was going to originally talk about time management, but I covered so much about time management um, in the Thriving in Your Preceptorship episode on one um, episode 114. So what I think I'll talk about next week might be more related to time management as far as just like managing the nursing school schedule and your workload and all of those things. Um, There's a chance that I'll change my mind. So if you come back next week and I'm talking about something totally different, uh, don't be surprised because sometimes a little unpredictability is good too. So I will see you back here next week. You guys have a fabulous week and don't forget to go check out that uh, freebie that 
medication, bulletproof your medication administration checklist. And then if you are really wanting to dial in your dosage calculations, go and sign up for my dosage calculations boot camp. All right, guys, have a great week. Bye for now. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing.